Hi friends, welcome to the Ian Khan Show. Today's guest is Paul Steimers. Paul was uh, listed among 40 under 40 K Street's new generation of lobbyists by the Washingtonian. He's a member of the executive committee of the Greater Washington Board of Trade. And he and I are also contributors to a recent book called Aftershock, in which the world's top futurists commented about the state of the world, the future as it's evolving, and where we are headed. Please give a warm welcome to Paul Steimers. Welcome to the Ian Khan Show, and today I have um, Paul Steimers here, who is a contributor to Aftershock. So you've been hearing about Aftershock, and you've seen some of the episodes on Aftershock. Paul is a DC-based thinker, a futurist, and a legal industry professional. He's uh, he's ingrained into uh, what happens within DC, what happens within the legal community. And his piece in Aftershock is very interesting. It's about the future of travel, transportation. And we want to hear from Paul what his thoughts are about the future. Paul, welcome to the Ian Khan Show. Thank you very much, Ian. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Paul, in your own words, tell us who you are. Tell us what you do. Uh, so I'm a, uh, I'm a lobbyist and uh, attorney. Uh, I'm with the firm of K&L Gates, and I work on a variety of issues related to emerging technologies, uh, mostly commercial space flight. And, and my essay for the, the book is about the second space age, uh, which I believe is upon us. I believe we're at an inflection point uh, in, in commercial space transportation that's really going to change the way we work and live uh, both here on Earth and in, uh, and in space. But over my 20-year career, uh, I've done a lot of work on emerging technologies of various kinds, from nanotechnology to information technology, uh, and now to quantum technology. I, I'm the founder and executive director of the Quantum Industry Coalition, which is working to secure U.S. leadership in the quantum fields. Amazing. That's so much. That's so many amazing things with everything having a profound impact on our future. We have limited time, unfortunately, today, and I have so many different questions for you. I want to start off with the fact that since the days of the Concorde, since that commercial flight stopped happening, we haven't really seen a breakthrough in commercial aviation. Why is that? Well, I think there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, the, the, the Concorde was a heavily subsidized uh, uh, government program as well. Uh, but the, the, the real issue there was that, that we have a sonic boom that we have to deal with. Uh, and it's very difficult to, uh, to break the sound barrier in a way that is um, not uncomfortable for people on the ground. NASA is actually working. Um, the, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration uh, has a lot of aeronautics research going on to try and find ways to break the sound barrier without uh, all of the disruptive, uh, disruption that comes from a sonic boom. And so essentially, it hasn't been the fact that there isn't any uh, money around, there isn't any, uh, you know, anybody who wants to make this happen, but it's purely because the technology is not meeting the market requirements, if you will, right? Right. There, there, is, there is real market uh, value in, in getting somewhere faster, right? Okay. We have a market for uh, uh, ultra high end first class travel experiences, right? We've got, we've got, um, suites that you can have in, in certain airlines as you, as you travel under continent. Yeah. Uh, so the money, and those are what, $20,000 a ticket and up. The yes. money, that sort of thing is, is, is clearly there. Right now it's being diverted toward luxury instead of towards speed. 
but but breaking through that that uh, that technical challenge uh, will enable it to be a matter of speed. And I would say one of the um, one of the ways of potentially doing that is point-to-point -point suborbital spaceflight, where you actually exit the atmosphere uh, and travel at an extraordinary rate of speed uh, from point A to point B, re-enter the atmosphere and 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 land as a plane essentially. Uh, and, and there are a number of companies that are looking at doing that, as well as atmospheric travel at high Mach. Excellent. Now, in, in addition to commercial aviation and, and what we've got going on the planet, there's obviously a push uh, towards going to the moon, going to the Mars, having intergalactic um, travel <laughs> options available. And you see companies like SpaceX, um, Virgin Galactic, a lot of different providers and companies trying to push that create technology that can do it and, and take it to, the, to a next level. Yes. What can you tell us about that industry that's evolving, space travel in general, uh, and where is it going in the next five to 25 years? Like, what can we see as a progression? Right. Well, I think it's a tremendously exciting time. And, and of course, only fewer than 600 people in all of human history have been into space. It's an extremely exclusive. Wow. wow. And already Virgin Galactic has taken deposits from more people than that uh, for, for their first rides. Uh, and that's, that's going to be something that they're, they're going to be coming online here very soon to start running through that backlog. We're seeing, and these are, these are suborbital flights. So this is uh, flights just into the edge of space uh, and, and then right back down to where they started from. Uh, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic are both doing that. And then companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin will be doing it soon too, uh, are going to be uh, offering orbital flights as well and, and, and going to destinations like the International Space Station, like private space stations. These are, these are destinations that are 250 miles away, just up. <laughs> yeah. So, so we're, still, we're still very close to Earth from a terrestrial perspective. Uh, from a, from a, you know, we're, not, we're, not, we're not going to other planets yet, certainly commercially, uh, and, and certainly not other galaxies. But um, but it's, it's the beginnings of something that I think is going to be radically different. Um, and, and the visions of the people who are funding this and who are providing the, the, the strategic guidance for this, people like uh, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, the, the vision is for millions of people to be having these experiences, to be living and working in space, to be going to Mars and, and staying on Mars. They're, they're visions that would be unthinkable except as science fiction even 15 years ago uh, but but the the technology is catching up to the vision rapidly yeah, yeah. so in in your book uh, in uh, the book and uh, we're co-contributors to uh, to aftershock yes. so aftershock first of all is a, a collective uh, contribution of 50 different futurists across the world from different disciplines uh, and you and I both are contributors to it. Uh, it's a really well-written, well-compiled uh, book that I really recommend everybody to buy because the insights therein are amazing. It's profound. It's I just love this book and the work I've that John Schroeder has done. It's intense. Yeah. It's it's really, really nice. Uh, so please buy this book, whoever is watching this podcast right now from Amazon. I believe it's on Amazon as well. But I want to read a little bit of passage from your uh, from your chapter that says... We are moving from a period of exploring space to a period of expanding into space. 
Like the pioneers before us, we are poised to tame a vast wilderness using its resources to promote human advancement. Now, we have no idea what space is like, what outer space is like, because we haven't been able to reach the outer boundaries of it. And we live in our small little bubble in the small little solar system in the Milky Way, tucked away neatly, nicely, and we feel that we are the center of the universe and everything revolves around us. How are we going to explore space? It's just so vast. Do you think technology in the next 10, 15 to 20 to 30 to 50 years is really going to advance so that we could, we could be in a different galaxy altogether or a few galaxies away? No, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think so because uh, the, the, uh, the tyranny of light speed is absolute as far as we're able to tell. We, we cannot travel faster than the speed of light. Uh, our, our very most, um, our, our very furthest reaches have just been outside the solar system, and that's after the, the, the Voyager probes and Pioneer probes. After traveling for decades, they have finally reached the end of the solar system. I don't think we are going to be in a place to, to go that far anytime soon, but I don't think we need to, to have a massive impact on the way we live here on Earth. To, for example, we now, we now have, have visited every planet. Uh, the, the New Horizons probe, uh, which was um, uh, led by a friend of mine, Alan Stern, uh, was just an incredible trip to Pluto uh, to see for the first time what Pluto actually looks like. Uh, and we went from having a, a couple of pixels of resolution on, on Pluto to just the magnificent uh, map with the heart and everything else. We now, we now know a great deal about what's in our solar system. One of the most exciting things about our solar system is the asteroid belt. And the asteroid belt contains asteroids that have within them uh, more platinum group metals than we have mined in all of human history. And by the way, the amount we've mined in all of human history would fit in one Olympic-sized swimming pool. It's not much. Uh, and the, 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 the challenge is that there's just not much of it here on Earth, but it's, it's relatively abundant in, in asteroids. Imagine getting a hold of that and being able to use it on Earth. What for? For things like catalytic converters, for things yeah. like uh, medicine and displays and things like that. We're talking about the ability to use resources that are abundant uh, in the solar system for the very first time. And that, that's going to have a huge impact on uh, our, our, our technological uh, advancement. It's going to have an impact on poverty in, in, in the world. Uh, that we can only begin to anticipate right now. And these are things that we know exist. We know how to get to them. Uh, we know what it's going to take. It's just a matter of putting all the pieces together. Yeah. And in your, in your, in your, chap in your chapter, uh, you also talk uh, a lot about 3D printing, additive printing, mm -hmm. and how that adds a new uh, component of us being able to do things in a different way. Uh, I'm very fortunate to be working with, uh, with the government of Dubai on a few of their initiatives. And uh, they, they, they do a lot of different new things. And they've recently had, um, I believe, the world's first two-story building that's 3D printed and a bunch of other things. It's really nice to see that somebody's doing something in that direction. What is your take on 3D printing? I want to tell you also a, a really quick story on, I met a, a somebody a few years ago, and they did what was the world's first 3D printed scanner, uh, spanner in space. 
and Dr. Julie Lin Wong, I interviewed her for my, uh, um, for my podcast a long time ago, had a, a, an online platform where now we could share 3D templates to do designs and to print remotely. What are your thoughts on this emerging industry of additive printing? Yeah, well, I know Julie Lynn. She's fantastic. And, uh, and the company that uh, made the, uh, the spanner is a company called Made in Space. They're operating a 3D printer on the International Space Station. And, um, uh, these are, whoops, this is actually uh, a splint that they made for astronaut Julie Whitson when she sprained her finger. Nice. Uh, it's, it's, and what's, what's exciting about 3D printing is that instead of trying to pack everything you think you'll need for your journey, say your six month journey to Mars. Uh, you can pack a 3D printer and a bunch of stuff, uh, feedstock for the printer. And then you have access to um, instructions or recipe essentially for anything that you would want to build. And I, I mentioned in my essay uh, that if, if a 3D printer had been involved in either the movie Apollo 13 or the movie The Martian, uh, both of those movies would have been very boring short films. <laughs> you take the drama out of the entire thing. You just print what you need and be done with it. Yeah. Um, and in fact, when um, uh, when my friends from Made in Space uh, met Andy Weir, the author of The Martian, and pointed that out to them, he, he helpfully reminded them that, well, he, he did have to have some way to sell the book. <laughs> yeah. And so 3D printing was not an option for uh, for, for that particular thing. Yeah, so it's, it's and, and the next phase beyond that is 3D printing in space itself, going out of uh, the environment of the International Space Station, for example, and constructing a, a, a satellite or a space vehicle in space. Right now, we design all of our satellites uh, around the constraints of the launch environment. So the first yes. 15 minutes, call it, of a satellite's 15-year life. And all of the constraints that that imposes limit what you're able to do with the satellite. If you could just build the satellite on orbit so you don't have to worry about gravity or pressure or folding up into a fairing or any of that, you can have a much more powerful, much more capable satellite as a result. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the race to mine on the moon or go to Mars? Uh, and all these grand plans of commercialization or um, to take the natural resources from one of these orbiting bodies around us. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And how do you see that developing more the commercial side, um, not just of travel, but more the commercial side of space exploration? Yeah, I think there's tremendous potential there. And, uh, and the exciting part about that is that uh, if, if, if it's led by commercial entities, it, they're they're free to make their own bets about that. They're not using taxpayer dollars to to, to get it done. Uh, and so if it doesn't pan out, it doesn't pan out. Uh, but if it does, then the uh, returns not just to those companies but to humanity are going to be substantial. I was actually involved in the um, uh, the legislation that that recognized a property right in um, in in resources that you pull out of a celestial body. Uh, the Outer Space Treaty prevents claims of territory. So you can't land on the moon and say, this part of the moon is mine. Uh, but if you pick up a moon rock, as we did when we visited, uh, and take it home with you, that's perfectly fine. That, that's no longer real estate, that's personal property. Uh, and so the, the, the legislation that I worked on clarified that the United States would recognize that. Uh, and, and that's going to be the foundation 
foundation for all of our uh, in-space mining efforts. Excellent. Now, recently, uh, President Trump has announced something regarding space travel, something regarding uh, a select group um, being able to explore space. Can tell, tell us more about that. What's happening in D.C. with respect to space exploration within government? Well, so the president has uh, has been extremely active on space, and it's been very exciting to be uh, to be part of all of that. Uh, to begin with, he has uh, reoriented NASA toward the moon and then Mars, uh, and that's starting with the Artemis program, which is going to put the first woman and next man on the moon, uh, ideally by 2024, um, and and put us back on the moon in a sustainable way. Uh, so that we're staying there. We're not just planting another flag and leaving some more footprints. We're going to be staying there. And the reason to do that is to practice for Mars. It takes six months, as I mentioned, to get to Mars. It takes three days to get to the moon. And if you're, if you're on your way to Mars, you're stuck. You're just, you're going to Mars. You can't really turn around and come back. And if you have a problem, you have to wait until the planets are back in alignment and then make another six month journey back. So you really, really want to practice somewhere easier before you try to do Mars. And the moon is a great place to do that. The moon's also intrinsically valuable for a number of other reasons. Um, there are resources on the moon that we want to be able to, uh, to, to use, water ice being uh, probably the most important. Uh, and then the moon has some national security and, and uh, commercial aspects to it as well. But it's part of our continuing, uh, as I say, expansion into the solar system be able to, to return to the moon, to stay on the moon, and, and then to use the moon as a jumping off point for further expansion toward Mars. Now, I, I recently watched Ad Astra, the, the, the movie with Brad Pitt in it. It was really interesting. I'm not sure if you've seen it or not, but in, in the film, it's all about space exploration and you know how we're able to go to Neptune and beyond. But the moon was used as, as kind of the secondary launch uh, I would say space to 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 do to, to for se for secondary rockets it was really interesting very yeah. interesting and I would recommend anybody who's interested in space exploration to watch Ad Astra it just opens up your mind to to new ideas which may or may not happen we don't know when they will happen but it's just a, definitely um, a different take on that I wanted to I wanted to, we're we're, sh we're, uh, we're running out of time shortly we have a few minutes but I wanted to ask you about how do we go on about what does an average person do when it comes to things such as space exploration? I don't think I will ever go into space as an example or any average person would go into space. How do we deal with this rapidly expanding world on one hand, but then we're dealing with a coronavirus outbreak right here on planet Earth. How do we balance these two things in terms of understanding the world that we live in? Well, to me, it's absolutely critical to understand that what we do in space has a tremendous impact on, on what we do in, on Earth. Uh, to begin with, the technologies that we're developing, whether it's for uh, the International Space Station or for the Moon or for Mars, are technologies that have uh, uses here on Earth as well. Anything from uh, water reclamation on the space station to solar power uh, to even just... just uh, uh, temperature management and things like that all, all come back to have applications on the ground. But more importantly than that, uh, the, the, the work that we do um, just from an exploration perspective captures people's imaginations and gets them sort of set on paths that are tremendously valuable. When you think about it, 
there's there's a lot of discussion about the, the the value of NASA, and there are different ways of looking at it. Some people say, "Oh, it's just Tang and Velcro," none of which is true. Some people say, "Well, everything that is in the iPod was developed in one way or another with with NASA." That's also that's that's truer. But really, since the Apollo program, virtually every engineer, virtually every scientist, virtually every entrepreneur we have in the United States and, and frankly in a lot of places around the world is a failed astronaut. They, they, they started wanting to do what they saw in, in the Apollo landings, wanting to do what they saw in, uh, in, in space shuttle missions, wanting to do what they saw in, uh, on the International Space Station, and, and then went on to do whatever they did, whether it was Amazon or, or, or you name it, Tesla. Yeah. So, so, so that's a tremendously valuable source of innovation, of entrepreneurialism, of economic activity here on Earth, and it comes from our exploration of space. Amazing. What advice do you have for newer generations, newer uh, young kids and, you know, people and children and kids and younger generations that are growing up now, probably getting into university or trying to choose a career path. Um, and with so much going on from AI to data science to um, the, what ha climate change, space exploration, how do the younger generations make up their mind with respect to choosing a future that aligns with the future of the planet, the future of our, of our generations um, and, and the human race. Well, one of the exciting things about, about the, the future shock world we're living in <laughs> is that all of these things are coming together. Uh, and the rate of change is increasing across all of these technologies. But what's really, what's really impacting things is that all of those changes are beginning to interact. And so you could be uh, a biochemist, you could be a, 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 a software programmer, you could be a lawyer like myself, and, and still have a way to contribute to all of this because it's all overlapping. Uh, so my recommendation is for people to find what they want to do and then figure out how it can contribute. Uh, certainly, certainly spending time understanding science and technology and mathematics and engineering are very important. Uh, but, but really, there are plenty of ways in this increasingly diverse ecology of, uh, of, of jobs and careers and, and fields uh, to make a difference and to, and to get involved. Amazing. Paul, I wish we had more time, but thank you so much for sharing your insights. Tell us a little bit more about where can we find you, where can we find your work, your, your books. Tell us more about how our viewers can, can find you. Sure. So again, I'm with the law firm of K&L Gates, uh, and we're a global law firm uh, that, that is uh, specialized in, in all sorts of uh, uh, different areas to help uh, our clients uh, and my own uh, Focus again is, is in lobbying for uh, emerging technologies. Uh, I'm on the web. Just look up Paul Steimers on your favorite search engine, S-T-I-M-E-R-S. And again, thank you very much for having me today. And uh, thank you for your work on the book and, and, and for the opportunity to chat. Thank you so much, Paul. And we'll catch you around. Thank you so much. And have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Hey friend, this is Ian Khan. If you liked what you saw on my video, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel and be inspired every single day with innovative content that keeps you fresh, updated, and ready for the future. For more information, also visit my website at iankhan.com.